Hey, hey, you people of Earth, it's time to enter the spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Casey. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on spoilerverse.com. But if you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Kenneth Regan, that is not Mr. Horsley, because today I'm going solo. I'm solo, so solo. No, seriously, today on the show, well, it's Steve Englehart, isn't it? And you know Steve's work. He was a very prolific writer, uh, a lot of Marvel, a lot of DC in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, he sat down today with our with our good buddy Casey and just had a, a great time and a great conversation. And instead of hearing me ramble on about a bunch of useless things, why don't we just sit back, relax, and listen to Steve in his own words. All right, everybody, welcome again to another episode of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have comic book writer, all-around professional guy. He has written... So many books, Captain America, Green Lantern, you name them, you can, you know, he probably has something to do with it. Steve Englehart. Steve, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. That was a terrible intro. So let's get down to something good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to keep the rest of the quality at the same level. Oh, man, man, man. (laughs) It can only see you start at the bottom and it can only go up. So my my shitty intro has is going to elevate the content of this just by default. So how you doing, man? How has COVID been treating you? That's what I want to know right now. Um, fine. We, um, out, I'm in California and we did lockdowns pretty early on and we believe in masks and science and so forth. So, I mean, there's still COVID going on out here, but it's, it's been, reasonably well contained and i certainly you know i paid attention to what they said to do and here i am so you know well where, where i live <laughs> yeah i mean it's supposed to be it's supposed to be a little more wild and woolly down south right our, our masks are the blood of jesus so <laughs> but l- luckily our our governor actually extended the mask order until november which shocked me but i'm very uh, appreciative and and hopefully you know if I don't see us getting out of this before that time comes. So, you know, hopefully good sense will prevail again. Well, I mean, I think we're going to be in it basically till they get a vaccine that people believe in. I mean, not just a vaccine, but a vaccine that people think actually works. And that's, you know, 
six months. I mean, who knows? It's it's amazing that we've been doing this since March, but I don't, you know, I think we've got a ways to go too. So you just learn to live with it, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Learn and to live I mean, with not getting it. That's what I mean to say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we've been doing uh, everything we can on our end to, to not catch it so we don't transmit it. My, my wife's grandparents live not too far away from us yeah. and yeah. it terrifies me if they get it. So yeah. You got to, you got to, you know, if you're a normal human being, you don't want to give it to other people. So anyway. So, so as a writer, cause I mean, you, you, I don't think you're, you're writing anything comic related now, but as a writer has, has being kind of stuck in the same place, like physically stuck in the same place has that, has that contributed to you making any breakthroughs or, or, or expanding what, what you're writing? Actually, yeah. I, you know, a number of years ago, I started, I came up with this idea for this vast, complex story that I thought I would like to tell, basically because doing a vast, complex story was, you know, fun as a writer to solve the problems, to do the different characters, all this kind of stuff. It had no deadline. It had no artist. It had nothing other than my desire to to you know to to write this thing eventually. But I did it in I did it in segments. I mean, I would write for a while, and then I'd travel, or I'd go to cons, or I'd go see my grandkids, or you know, just it was it was not the top of my list to do. But it was something that I could turn to when I, you know, when I felt like doing it. But with the pandemic being inside all the time, I sort of drifted back into like, well, I'm not doing a lot of those other things, but I can do that. So I've been writing this thing and I'm actually pretty close to being done with it. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm real happy with it. It's, it's as, just as a writer who likes to write, I've been, I've been making myself happy doing this thing and, and working my way through all the different problems that I set up for myself when I get done with it. Then we'll see if anybody wants to draw it, if anybody wants to publish it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, I think it's I think it's good. On the other hand, if well, all right. So it's it's seven chapters. Each chapter is 60 pages long. It's basically a mini series made up of graphic albums. And if you know, so we're talking 420 pages. And if there's somebody out there who thinks they want to draw that, I'm happy to hear from them, you know. But if it, if it turns out there isn't, then fine. I just did it for the writing, the fun of writing, you know, and, and we'll worry about the other parts when I get done with it. In, in what genre is it? It's, it's got superheroes in it, but it's about something bigger than superheroes. That's about all I can say about it at this point. I mean, I like superheroes. I didn't want to get away from superheroes, but I wanted to do some other stuff that kind of went around superheroes. And that's, you know, probably as specific as I'm going to get at this point, but I think it's a good story. That's all I can say. Awesome. Awesome. I, I can't wait to see it. I, um, I really genuinely hope it, it. you find somebody to illustrate it and, and get it out there because it's, I, I love seeing the projects that, that people do, not because, you know, Marvel or DC asked them to come and do something, but because they said, I have this idea and this has been in the back of my head for a long time. It needs to come out. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if any, you know, if other people are doing this because of the pandemic, but I mean, Pretty much everything that I did over the years was because Marvel or DC or somebody came and said, do this, please, you know, and I, you know, fine. That was the rules of the game. I was happy to go with that. But in fact, I just like to write, you know, so 
writing is usually <laughs> a pleasure for me. You know, I mean, sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's just, oh, God, what am I going to do today? But in general, you know, I like to write. So that's, it's, I don't need somebody to ask me to do something. So we'll see. Anyway. So what, tell me, you're, you're having a terrible day. Words are not coming out. Mm. What do you do? I ran into that when I, when I wrote my first novel, because I was switching over from comics to novels. And there was, you know, novel, it was, um, novels were bigger. They were longer. They were exponentially longer because the longer you go, those sort of wider and higher everything gets as well. And I was having to like learn all that, adjust to all that. And, and what I found was then there were days when I'd sit down and I'd go, I have nothing. I don't have anything I want to say. I don't feel like it. And I would still make myself write five pages of a novel, which is, I don't know what that is in comic book terms, but I knew, you know, fortunately we were, we had achieved computers by that time, or we were actually, we hadn't, <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait a minute, let me rephrase that. We hadn't actually. So I knew that if I, if I wanted to change anything, I was going to have to go back and retype it because I, it was on a typewriter in those days, but, but. If I made the five pages, that meant so I, w- I had made progress in the book. So that then the next day when I sat down, I knew that I had, you know, I had achieved something the day before. Even if I didn't like it, even if I thought, oh, I'm going to, you know, totally rewrite this later. So that's kind of my solution. If I, you know, if I have nothing at all to say, I'll still say something just so that I can say, oh, yeah, I, I made progress. I did this. Maybe I'll change it but at least I have something to work with. So it's just like, you know, beating a horse, right? <laughs> it's just yeah. like, just make yourself go out and do something. And I, I've never found anything better than that. It's just like, there are some days when you just don't, you just don't feel it at all, but you can do something, you know? So w- when you, you started in comics, what, mm. what comics did you buy growing up? Like what, what turned you on to the, the form? Well, I, you know, I grew up, I became a conscious child in the 50s, right? And the only things that we had, as far as superheroes go, were Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and the, and you know, adventure comics, whatever. But there was like DC characters, and that was pretty much it. Marvel was not Marvel yet, and, and so forth. But they did reprint Dick Tracy strips from the newspaper. And Those old strips were awesome. They absolutely were, you know, and so that was like really good comic stuff then and and that I was able to read. And, I, you know, and I did read the Batman and Superman and, and Wonder Woman and all that. Then in the 60s, I, you know, more more come, you know, Marvel started up, Gold Key started doing things. Charlton got it. I mean, there was a lot of, of there were a lot more companies sort of trying interesting stuff in the 60s because of the Marvel success. And and. I, I bought and read everything. I mean, I, I romance comics, Western comics, monster comics from big companies, little companies. You know, it didn't really matter. I was just fascinated by this explosion of comic material because I'd been, I'd liked what I'd had, but it, but I but it had been limited, and all of a sudden it wasn't limited anymore. So I didn't want to like you know just say, well, I'll only read DC comics, and I don't want to know what Marvel's doing or, or you know, what about Gold Key? What about Magnus Robot Fighter? What about, you know, the Blue Beetle over at Charlton? I mean, there were all these things that I wanted to know about. And I've, I have been struck over the years. I mean, when I got into comics professionally, 
I kind of knew a whole lot about comics. I mean, I knew about Will Eisner and Bill Everett and, you know, and, and the Ray and all this stuff from, from before my time, too. I mean, it just seemed to me if you were going to do comics, you ought to know about comics. That's not, you know, and then as comics became more expensive and they, there were a lot more of them and even so, you know, I'd start to meet people who only read the X-Men or who only read, you know, Batman or whatever. And I never could understand that exactly. But, you know, part of that is probably just comics were a dime or 12 cents, you know, oh, yeah. and it was easy enough. And they were on newsstands and, you you know, so you could go down to the drugstore and you could buy, you know, 15 comics because everything that was out was, was uh, available. You didn't have to go to a specialty store. You didn't have to spend three ninety nine, four ninety nine, you know, whatever. So, I mean, it was just, I'm, I'm just a child of my era. <laughs> and in that era, it was very easy to sort of learn everything about comics, find out everything. Hey, uh, do you do you keep up with anything today? Not so much. The I, I've and this is another thing that I've found over the years, and not just with me. If you're asked to write a character, then you really well. For me, I put myself as far inside that character as I can go, and I try to figure out, you know, like. What is this character supposed to be like? And what should the book be like? And what should, I mean, all these different decisions that you have to make when you're trying to do, you know, trying to meet the standards that you think that you're capable of meeting. And so after you stop reading, after you stop writing a, a character, then nobody else's character, exact, ter- nobody else's version of that character seems, it, does, it doesn't hit on all cylinders. For me, and and I have discussed this with other writers, and 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 it's kind of the same with you know at least some of us, some other people. So, you know, having gone, having done this for having done this for a long time, and then been out of it for a while, and all this kind of stuff, you know, people will come and they'll go, "Oh man, you should really read this book because this book is like really good." And I'll go read it, and I'll go, "It is, but it's just not, you know, it's not working for me." And I can afford to do that now, you know. I mean, if I were still in the midst of it, I would read everything, and and whether I liked it or not. But and it's not that I don't like it. It's just you know, um, not I. You know, I keep saying, but I would do it this way, or you know, I just don't know that I believe in that thing that he just did, and so forth. So I've got that whole secondary, you know, like on DVDs, I've got that commentary going on. Oh yeah, the whole, yeah, the whole time, you know. Rather than just reading the book, it's because now I see it from the inside out. Right? Are Are you able to enjoy like like a book now, just like a, a plain, not like non comic stuff? You mean a a prose book with just words? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and yeah. appreciate it for what it is, rather than pick it apart as, as a writer. Yeah, I you know I I did I did four novels, so I had you know actually I did a couple more under pseudonyms, but I, you know I mean I did half a dozen novels, so I have been inside that business, but not not nearly you know I mean half a dozen things is not the same as three hundred or five hundred or whatever oh, yeah. <laughs> you know whatever I wrote there. So yeah, I don't have the same I don't have the same I'm I'm I'm. I am critical, though. I mean, I'll sit there and watch, I'll watch, you know, a movie on TV and I'll be making snarky comments about, you know, eh, I don't know, eh, that didn't, you know, that guy was lazy that day, you know, and I don't think, wait a minute, how did she know that when we didn't, you know, so I'll be doing stuff 
I guess I'm doing the artist commentary on everything, but <laughs> but if I'm watching it on TV, I can't do anything about it. So I can just say, oh well, you know. But with comics, yeah, I you know, I I feel like I kind of figured comics out, and and so I have trouble. I have trouble then getting past that with comics, but with other things, movies, TV, books, you know, games, whatever. That's all fine. I'm glad that you still have stuff to say in comics in, in that you're still writing and you know, that, that creative drive is, is still happening. Sorry. Oh, the yeah. drive is there. And, and, and the fact that it's comics is, is a thing too. But I just, I do like the rhythms of comics and I found, you know, it's fun to write comics for me, you know, do you mind if I ask you about your your time at Wesleyan and specifically? So in '69, you graduated from Wesleyan with a yeah. degree in psychology. Yeah. Did you do you think you ever kind of applied that stuff to to your writing and, and how you develop your characters? Well, in a way, I mean, the reason that I got the degree in psychology was because I was interested in people. I was interested in you know what makes people tick, and by the time I got the degree. I had learned that there are many different theories in psychology. I was looking for the answer. And, you know, but there's Freudian and there's Jungian and there's Adlerian and there's, you know, all these different schools where they all go, yeah, if you take it, you can make a theory out of these things. But then it's not the same theory as the other guys who made it, who can't look at it in a different way. And that was, that didn't give me the answer that I was looking for. Now, you know, there is no one answer as to why people are, but I was, you know, I was, I was young and stupid and I, you know, I was looking for, for that. So, but what I did find then was my interest in people came back in writing. I mean, you know, and doing all these different characters, the fact that hopefully, you know, my Captain America is not the same guy as my Batman is not the same guy as my Hal Jordan, who's not the same guy as my John Stewart. You know I mean? It's just like each one of them became an individual for me to whose head I could get inside. And I like that. And that, you know, so I can see the connection, but I can't, you know, but, it, but did I take psychiatric theory and apply it to comics? No, not really. I, so, so when you, when you started working in, in comics, you, you were actually a member of the Krusty Bunker group. Yeah. Which is, uh, well, before it was such, there wasn't a group really in the beginning, but yeah. Oh, really? So you were, you were there at the, at the inception of, of Neil Adams little yeah. group of folks. Yeah. I was the first guy that he took on where he said, oh, I think, you know, I'll help you out. I will, you know, I'll do stuff with you. And I'm sure I'm a great disappointment because I didn't end up being an artist, but Neil was such a good storyteller. I learned all sorts of, you know, useful things from him. Anyway, and, and, and I do, you know, I do visualize everything I write, which I think is helpful because I can, I can see how it, how it could go on the page. Not that I expect the artist to draw it the way I see it, but I, you know, but I know that I'm not asking him to draw something that, that can't be drawn. But anyway, Neil, you know, worked with me and then I got launched and, and ended up being a writer and ended up moving to the other coast from where he lives and so forth. And it was after that that, well... No, I was still in New York when he first started, you know, putting other people into his thing. And then we got Continuity Studios. He had a lot of space for people to come and work. And so a lot of people would come to New York and they'd go hang out at Neil's place. And that kind of built up the whole Krusty Bunkers thing. So, and I, you know, as I say, wasn't an artist at that point. So, so there was me 
And then I think, you know, there might have been about a year when there was nobody. And then the crusty bunkers started coming up from there. Oh, wow. But even then, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, sometimes there'd be a, sort of a general call. Let's all go down to Neil's place and, and ink a bunch of pages overnight or some such thing, you know, I mean, <laughs> so it was, it was, uh, it was a fluid time, I guess. Do you still talk to some of those cats? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I live out here 3,000 miles away from a lot of them. Back in the day, you physically had to go to New York, right? I mean, oh, yeah. There, yeah. there was no FedEx, there was no internet. So it, the kind of unwritten, but, but pretty strongly encouraged rule was physically be in the same buyer region. So you can go into the office and hand things to people and pick things up from people. But I moved out to California. There still was no FedEx or internet, but that, you know, uh, we made it work. And uh, and now people are all over the country. But yeah, I you know I I keep in touch. Awesome, awesome. I I, I noticed that you know not only did you work with Neil on Vampirella, mm-hmm. but you also got to work with Gardner Fox on the story Retribution. What were they like to work with, and what did you what did you learn from them? Well, they- Neil was Neil. I mean, Neil was a was a wonderful human being. I mean, he just he went out of his way to give this unknown, you know, guy a chance to get into the business. He made sure that I got a credit on that Vampirella story, even which, I mean, nobody ever credited their assistance. Many people had assistance, but nobody ever credited them. But he made sure that I got a credit so that I would have a credit so that I could go and say, well, here's this, my name's on this book, you know? So yeah, when you're thinking about giving me work, you can see, you know, that I actually did work on this other he was great and, 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 you know, just helpful, but a, but a really good human being, a nice person to be around. I don't know that I ever met Gardner Fox. I mean, because again, most comic stuff was you would go to the office and they'd say, here's the script. <laughs> you know, it was handed in yesterday by Gardner Fox. Or, or, okay. <laughs> right. So, I mean, on the other hand, by being in New York in those days with pretty much everybody in comics, it was a it was a subculture within New York, and you know there's five million subcultures in New York, and this was the comic book subculture. So that you would, you know, you would see people at the offices, but you would also go out to dinner with them afterwards. You would somebody throw a party, and you know anybody could show up. I mean, it could be you know young guys just breaking in. It could I you know I went to parties with Wally Wood and 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 so forth. I mean, rode home on the subway with Wally one one three four in the morning night. So again, there was, it was, it was a sort of a magical time. If you, again, if you were into comics, it was, that was where comics was. And, and it was magical to get into that. But most, you know, I mean, Marvel gave me a chance to write stuff. I liked the writing. They liked the writing. So they started giving me more. And then pretty soon they gave me all I could handle. I mean, that's how freelancers worked. You can have as much work as you can actually turn in on time. So I got up to the point within a very few months where I was like, you know, doing four books a month or whatever it was. And I was writing, you know, all the time, which fortunately for me, I liked doing, but you know, I, that didn't go into the office that much. And that's why I eventually moved to California. I thought, well, I'm not actually going into New York all that much. I'm doing all this by sitting alone in a room. So the room, you know, could be anywhere. And if I do come out of the room, well, I like the West Coast better. So, you know, 
that was that was the thing. So I, you know, I I knew I knew people that I didn't work with. I worked with people I didn't know. But that was just part of you know, it was all assignments. That's another thing. I mean, yeah. in those days, you didn't go in there and say, "Hey, I really want to work with Gardner Fox," or or by that time being a writer, I didn't go in and say, "Oh, I really want to work with Neil," or "I really want to work with anybody." It's just you would go in and they'd say. We want you to write this book. This other person's going to draw it. You'd go, okay, fine. You know, that's that's how that went. Well, you you ended up working alongside and, and you know taking over projects from from huge huge names. Mm. Did that ever like intimidate you or anything like that? <sighs> no, because I was young and stupid, so I, <laughs> I, I, was just, I wasn't into being intimidated. But I mean, I've, I've told the story a lot that when Roy Thomas gave me the Avengers, I felt the need to have to live up to the high standard that he had set. And this, again, was part of my education. I mean, I tried to write Roy Thomas-like stories and was never really happy with them. And it wasn't until I started writing Steve Englehart-like stories that I said, oh, okay, that's the stories that I like to write. So I was... I. I wasn't intimidated by the Avengers, but I just really felt the need to like live up to the standard that had been set. And I, you know, I think I sort of got there mechanically, you know, I kind of made sure that the stories that I were, was writing, you know, hit all the, the, the marks that I thought they should hit, but they weren't like coming from deep within. They were coming through a craft that I was just sort of learning on the fly at the time. I mean, there's everybody, you know, I think has their own version of that, that you, when you start out doing something, you have goals, your boss has goals for you, et cetera, et cetera. You're trying to work within that menu. You're not really, you know, just sort of like letting it fly right at the beginning. But if you, you know, hopefully you can get to that point. So when going back a little bit, when you transitioned from, from artist to, to writer, was that hard for you? And do you still do you still try to keep up with the practice? Art, not so much. I was, you know, I think I was like on my way to being something as an artist, but I never went there. So I can't really say, oh, yeah, I would have been great at this. I can't also say, oh, I would have been terrible at this. I don't I don't really know. I was I was enjoying the right of uh, the art, but I found that I liked writing, too. And because, you know, you can write many more books per month than an artist can draw, you know, I got a chance to, to write all these different characters, which as it turned out was something I really liked to do. So I sort of let the art stop at that point. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, 20, 30 years later and, and, oh, I haven't drawn anything in quite a long time. So, I mean, people still come up to me and go, oh, would you draw something for me? And it's, and the answer is no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, you know, I haven't done it in so long that, that, you know, it would be, it would be pretty rudimentary at this point. So there was nothing against art that just writing gave me a chance to do more of what it was that I like to do. So what, when you started at Marvel, was there anyone there that, that kind of took you under their wing? Yeah, it was a bullpen, just like they said it was, you know, I mean, it was a small office. As the new guy, I started out as an editorial assistant, filling in for Gary Friedrich was how I got in my foot in the door. And so I was sort of the person out front when you came to the office and said, oh, I'd really like to see Stan Lee. I would go, well, 
you know, sorry, but, you know, can't, <laughs> you know, I was the gatekeeper in, in effect, but I was also doing editorial stuff and all that. But right behind me, Johnny Ramita Sr. and Herb Trimpey were our staff artists. And, and you know, they they were very welcoming. Across from me was Marie Severin, who was very welcoming. I mean, it was it was a friendly place. It was people helping each other turn out the best comics they could turn out. And, you know, our Marvel in those days was exactly what you hoped Marvel would be and what they said they were. I didn't, I never had, you know, anybody try to get in my way or, you know, I mean, I, I was doing what I was supposed to do, but I mean, I, nobody was trying to like screw me over or, you know, play office politics or do any of that kind of stuff. It was just, it really was a bunch of people who liked doing comics and, and, you know, we're getting to do them. So I, you know, I did the Hulk with Herb. I, I didn't do anything. Well, no, I, I actually, when I first started, I did a couple of romance stories and Johnny inked one of them, you know, I mean, it was, it was just all back and forth. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It really was, you know? So while you were at Marvel, you, you created so many amazing characters at Marvel and and obviously at DC, we're going to get to that too. Don't worry. See the the hard part about interviewing you in particular. You know what it is? Too many, you, too many characters. You've done everything, <laughs> and so like I had a I interviewed Peter David mm-hmm. not long ago, and as soon as I got done with the call, which it was about two hours worth of interview, I as soon as I got done, I was like, damn it, I didn't even ask about Aquaman. Mm. He's the guy that cut Aquaman's hand off. So, <laughs> but there, there's so many things that you've done, and one of those things that you've done recently that has made a huge impact on co- pop culture. What, like 30 years later? Hell, 40 years later, you created Peter Quill. You created Star Lord. Yeah. How is that seeing him in the film? And has Marvel taken care of you with that? <laughs> because they should. Yeah, they do. That's part of that. Marvel's good about that end of things. Well, I created Peter Quill to be this complete asshole. And what I was going to do <laughs> was have him get, you know, get more of a clue about life over time. And then I left the company, you know, right after I did the first one. So pretty much all of his mellowing was done by other people. But I, you know, I was, I loved Guardians of the Galaxy. I've, you know, I've said, in public, and I've said it. I've said it to the actress involved that that the Mantis that they. I've said it. I've said it to the director James Gunn as well. I mean, you know, the Mantis is not my Mantis. I'm sorry that she's not, but I do understand that movies are different from comics, and you have to, you know, you're working with a different rhythm and a different time frame and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, you know, but I have no problems at all with Peter Quinn Quill. Sorry, Peter Quinn's a character from one of my novels. No, so, yeah, I mean, it was when they first said, you know, when I first heard <clears throat> that they were going to do a movie with Star-Lord in it, I didn't believe it. I mean, I thought, I mean, if I had to make a list of, of all the people that I've created who might end up in the movies, he would have been probably at the bottom of the list. <laughs> but but they, you know, those movies were great. And, and uh, you know, it's unfortunate that James Gunn wrote some stuff when he was a teenager that he was later embarrassed by but you know i you know marvel made a mistake by firing him then they rectified it by hiring him back but in the meantime he gets to do suicide squad and i'll be interested to see you know what he does with suicide squad because i like you know 
I can quibble. I can I can give you the the the, the commentary here or there about this <laughs> or that. But I mean, in general, yeah, I've been I've been really happy with that though that those movies, the Guardians movies, but basically all the Marvel movies. I mean, you know, they're they are replicating what it was that made Marvel special. And of course, what? DC never can figure that out. So DC is you know, yeah, DC man, <laughs> those movies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited to see Gunn's take on Suicide Squad, but yeah. everything else, uh, it, with the exception, I really enjoyed the Shazam film. And if you haven't seen it, give it a try. Okay. It was okay. where everything else seems relatively joyless. It had a yeah. lot of good stuff going for it. Yeah. Well, Wonder Woman, too, right? I mean, I liked parts of Wonder Woman. I really did. I wanted to really like it. Okay. Um, and maybe it was the hype didn't, the sizzle didn't match the stake, but mm-hmm. I, I thought the third act was pretty cool. The, the world war one scene yeah. specifically was, was very well done. I didn't like the, the part where they're on. I cannot say where she's from. I, it's just a word I can't say, but I didn't Paradise like Paradise Island. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Terra or whatever. Oh, okay. <laughs> Right. So that that part of the film, I I don't know. I th- I think it was more a visual thing. I I thought the visuals looked bad, mm, but okay. I, yeah. Outside yeah, of that, no, I, I mean, it. I I can I can quibble. Why did they pick up those three guys who then never did anything? You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, the the script was was off balance in places. I mean, I that's the commentary, right? I mean, blah blah blah, but. Overall, I I was happy with the movie. So, you you pays your money, you take your choice. As someone who made the Joker not a a goober anymore, (laughs) which if, you know, listeners out there, Steve was the guy that that made the Joker scary. He he made him a a maniac. So, so... Returned to that. I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah. Bill Finger made him scary in the first place, you know. But they, oh, yes, then they forgot. Then they, you know, then they got worried in the fifties and and cleaned him up. And and I mean, that's I said before. That's part of when I, you know, took over Batman. I had to figure out what I wanted to do with Batman and and so forth. But I also, what did I want to do with the book? And part of the book was getting back to to, to that dark, scary feeling that it had i mean it was super scary in 1939 but it was dark and it was weird and they completely lost that for 35 years or whatever so <laughs> you know uh, that was part of my wanting to be a professional you know and i mean they designed me this book so i was going to do what i could do with this book did you catch any blowback from from taking him away from i, I guess the the 60s batman tv show style villain no, well, that was one of the things Jeanette Kahn said when she hired me to do it. She said, you know, I mean, Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, Bob Haney, they've been doing much more, much less campy Batman here, but people don't know it. People still think of the Batman as the TV series. This is what she said to me in the mid-70s after the TV series had been on in the mid-60s. So that was one of the things I wanted to do, you know, was definitively move it away from, from that image. And uh, I mean, again, the guys who had been doing it had been doing a good job, but but had not really moved the needle. And I and I do think, you know, kind of 
making the Joker scary, making bringing back the, the dead of night kind of thing, darkness, contributed a great deal toward people going, oh, oh, here's a Batman <laughs> that, we're, you know, that we'll actually pay attention to or something. You know? Do you think that because of specifically like the Laughing Fish and stories like that, do you think that that kind of allowed people to to go a little bit deeper with it and t- take it in new places? Oh, sure. Just by virtue of of your work. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, because I had sort of reestablished where the benchmarks were, and and I mean, in if you look at it now, you know, I took the Joker from like zero to sixty, and people since have taken it up to six million. I mean, you know, is. He's gotten much scarier and weirder and, and so forth in various other people's takes on it. But, I, you know, I take, I take some pride in being the guy who kind of pointed everybody in that direction, you know? It's one of those things where, in retrospect, you go, well, how come nobody else ever thought of this? And it's like, well, I don't know, but they didn't. So, you know, but once, once people saw what you could do with it, then people started doing stuff with it. And that's, you know, that's the nature of comics, too. So what separates what what your Batman is from the the people that were coming before? What was that that ingredient that you added that that wasn't present in the time right before you you came along? Well, the real you know the pulp darkness. I mean Neil Adams, for example, Jim Aparo, for example. I mean they could draw a good Batman in darkness, but it didn't have a, a dark feel to it. It was, you know, it had that sort of 70s DC, you know, we're hip and, you know, but we're not scary kind of, (laughs) kind of vibe to it. But also, I mean, I, that was the, that was the meta stuff, but in the, in the personal stuff, you know, I, I tried to make Bruce Wayne an actual person whose head I could get inside, you know, not just the costume, but the guy inside the costume and then Silver St. Cloud nailed that i mean by giving him speaking of nailed (laughs) yeah well you know that was you know there'd been you couldn't have sex in comics either and and we were still under the code so the sex is all you know off panel you have to walk a tight rope right yeah 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 because you know you're writing kids are supposed to be able to read this too you don't want to you don't want to scare the children you know whatever but you didn't want to be tied down i you know i i it had always bugged me since I read those comics in the fifties when, you know, when, when women would approach superheroes, superheroes would blush and stammer and, and beg off. And I, even as a kid, I'm like, I don't think that it works that way. (laughs) So I really wanted Batman to have a girlfriend that he was sleeping with. I want, if he's a playboy, if he's a big time operator, then he should do that kind of, Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's sort of obvious in retrospect, but at the time it, it hadn't happened. But I mean, he's supposed to be this mover and shaker in Gotham City that people pay attention to. And he, you know, he does big deals and he goes to big parties. You know, it's like so coming up with a woman who would be strong enough to like live with that guy, to, to be with that guy. And then, I mean, all that just made Bruce Wayne much more of a character, made him much more of a person. And that, you know, a person, if you, ta- if you make somebody more of a person and put him in a scarier environment, you've changed a lot from, from what had been the norm before that. And you open up, you know, a whole new direction for pe- other people to go. So 
you, you were you were mentioning Jeanette Kahn earlier. Mm. She fascinates me, and I, I've her and and Jim Shooter both are you, you and you both worked under them, or you you worked under them both rather. Yeah. <laughs> How was your experiences there? Because I've I've heard a lot of varying stories. And I, I'm I'm just curious how you how it was working under those people because they seem to be very polarizing to some people. Well, shooter's easiest shooter's easiest to answer. Shooter had rules. Shooter uh, was a guy who kind of like synthesized the comics that he read and tried to make rules, which then he wanted to follow, which was constrictive. But I had already done, you know, I had. I've been there before he was, right? I had I had had some success with Avengers and Captain America and so forth before I came back to Marvel in the 80s. So Shooter sort of took a pa- a flyer at telling me what the rules were and well, one was you never called anybody a supervillain because people in the real world didn't call people supervillains. And I said, "Yeah, but this world has got Dr. Doom in it, and people would invent a word for somebody like him as opposed to somebody who knocks over a liquor store on Saturday night. Oh, yeah. For right? Sure. I mean, it's just like you had to kind of come back at him with logic. And with logic, he could sort of follow it. And 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 so he then kind of let me do my thing. There were times when he would, you know, try to make something happen. And, and as somebody who's working for him, I mean, if he said, I really want this to happen— I might argue with him in a non-confrontational way, but I'd say, well, but it really would, shouldn't it be this? But if if he was set on it, you know, okay, that's kind of, I have to kind of roll with that. So that happened now and again. With Jeanette, it was kind of similar in that, I mean, I had quit Marvel, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, that stuff happens. And she came and she said, you know, I really want you to do what you did for Marvel over here at DC. And I said, well, if I did that, I would have to have sort of complete control because that's how I do it. And she said, okay, you know, and, and again, I was going to do Batman for Julie Schwartz and Julie was not known to be a taskmaster, but he was known as a hands-on editor. He was a guy who wanted to be involved in, in all aspects of the book. And I don't know, I assume Jeanette went to him and said, we're going to let this guy do what he wants to do. And Julie, you know, he rolled with that. I mean, I never got the impression that Julie was resenting my freedom or, you know, or trying to put a lid on it or any of that kind of stuff. Julie, you know, wanted, he wanted good comics and I guess he believed that I could provide them and and so forth. So I'm sure Jeanette, you know, did, did her boss thing now and again, but I didn't really, I had a good relationship with her as it, it turns out that she's the one who signed me to an illegal contract to work on the Batman movie. And, and I uh. don't know whether she knew any better, you know, or whether she was just, you know, handed stuff by the movie people that I don't know. But uh, so, you know, I can't say, oh, she was always a perfect person she might have been but i can't say that she was because i don't i don't know but i you know i didn't have trouble bottom line was i didn't have really much interference or friction or anything from her and 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 not too much from shooter i was told after they fired shooter that he was getting to the point where he was gonna start laying down the law to me 
which wouldn't have gone well <laughs> if yeah. he had tried it. So I, you know, who knows how that would have worked. I mean, I worked for him later at Valiant. So as I say, we, you know, we could, we could coexist. I've, I've heard that when he was let go at Marvel, they, they had a party and burned him in effigy. So <laughs> um, I, I do not know that. I do not know that. I mean, there, he, he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not going to say, oh, he wasn't like his image because he was. And, you know, there were way too many people who had horror stories about, you know, trying to deal with a guy who had rules and, and didn't want to hear about any breaking of the rules as a general general policy. But my relationship with him was okay. What fascinates me about him is that he started out, you know, as, as a kid who liked writing comics, came into it and then kind of morphed into a guy who understands that, hey, this is a business and we have to, we're in the business of selling comics and putting out comics. So that that's what really fascinates me about about him. And with Jeanette, I think it's it's more or less the, she came in at a time when you, you really didn't have a lady boss that often. Yeah, she had been the, the publisher at a kid's magazine somewhere else in the, in the Warner's hierarchy. And so they'd moved her over, probably up too. But I mean, you know, she came, she come, came from somewhere else in the organization. But yeah, uh, there were, you know, there were very few people, very few women. As I said, there were a couple of letterers, Denise Vladimir, you know, a couple of colorists. There was Ramona Fraden was still around, but there really was, you know, hardly any females involved in this. It, you know, uh, fortunately, I mean, I don't know, what can I say? It didn't, I didn't care. I mean, she was the boss. She was, you know, fine. She's the boss. But she, yeah, she definitely came in at a time when she didn't have a lot of female companionship. Did you ever work with Louise Simonson? Not with Louise. I mean, I know, I know her, you know as well as I can from living 3,000 miles away from her. But I mean, <laughs> in the early days when I was in New York, I mean, there was a group of us, you know, Walt and, and Wheezy and Jeff Jones and Bernie Wrightson, you know, I mean, there were a bunch of, you know, all the young people sort of hung out together. And, you know, I had a fabulous Thanksgiving up at, at Bernie's farm, I guess. Oh, nice. Once, and all those people were there. And, I, you know, I mean, so I, you know, everybody loves Louise and, and I do too. But no, I never, I never did anything with her. Never did anything professionally with her. I, um, I'm fascinated with her as an editor. I, th I think that like she, she's a great writer as well. But just what she did uh, while she edited the X books back in the day is just it, almost like a Sisyphean task, and she, she made it happen. So well, uh, I think, I think everybody does love her, and so probably you know if she wanted, you know. Nobody was looking to like screw her up, uh, I would say. But I wasn't at Marvel at that time. I mean, when she was an editor, I was probably at Malibu or, or you know, someplace else. We didn't we didn't overlap there. So you you mentioned the Batman film, the eighty nine Batman film earlier. You kind of I guess wrote the script for it, and they I guess they they screwed you over. Yep. But yes. what part <laughs> for yeah. for lack of a, a better? I'll just be blunt. What parts of the film did they did they change? Because I, I I understand they like Silver is is now Vicky Vale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Boss Thorn became Boss Grissom. I mean, that's that's just blatant. I mean, the, the those two characters are clearly the characters that I created, and and they decided they would screw me over in that regard. 
but in terms of the film, I mean, they had probably around 80, well, I mean, when the, when the comics came out in, the, in 76, 77, Mike Uslan said, oh, I see how now how to do Batman as an adult, and I'm going to make a Batman movie. And then they tried for 10 years, and they couldn't get it. I mean, they, well, they couldn't get it. And so in like 86, Jeanette called me up and said, you know, this is pretty much a direct quote. She said, they, you know, they've been trying, and they can't get the ambiance that you did in the comic. So we want you to come work on the movie. So I came in as basically a script doctor and, and I wrote treatments. I mean, they showed me, they showed me the scripts that existed and I was trying to steer them more toward, because they were still, it was coming out of the Chris Reeves Superman. They, you know, they weren't, you kind of had to show if you were doing a comic book movie that you knew it was kind of silly. So you'd have a silly villain of some sort, you know, you'd have some, some comic relief character in there. And I was really trying to get it, get that out of there and, and steer it more toward the more straightforward adult girlfriend with sex with a scary joker with all that, you know, everything that I had done in the, in the comic, which is what they said they wanted. And so that was kind of a, an ongoing thing in that I would get a script and I'd mark it up and I'd say, no, let's take, let's change this to that. And sometimes they would, and sometimes they wouldn't. And then they, they came back and they said, well, why don't you give us a plot for the movie that you would do? And it has to have the Penguin and, the, and Robin in it. And I said, oh, I, you know, that seems like a lot of... Yeah, yes, a lot of moving pieces. Going off for, a, for an opening movie, you know? But I did it, and then they said, oh, yeah, okay, I, yeah, we see, you're right, that's too many people. So then do <laughs> another one that's just the Joker with no, bar, no Robin and no, no Penguin. And I did that, and then, you know, they wrote a script off of that. But it's still, you know, there was always some contingent somewhere. Because I never, you know, wherever they were making this movie, I was in California, which, for all I know, they were making the movie in California, but they were doing it in L.A., if so... I, you know, I always dealt with this stuff through Jeanette. I would send stuff to Jeanette. She would send it to the movie people. They would come back and they'd say, well, have him do this. And, and that didn't seem weird to me at the time. I didn't know anything about Hollywood. And, you know, working for Jeanette was what I was accustomed to do. But, you know, I mean, they, they did ask for me to come in there and, and doctor this thing. I did go in there and doctor the thing. And I thought, you know, cool. I mean, it's it's not going to be exactly what I want it to be because they they still want to have. I think the the I forget his name. The Robert. He was an Arliss, I think, on TV. Oh yes, 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 yes. I know exactly you're talking the, about. The, yeah, that guy, right? Robert Just, Wall. Yeah, they wanted him as the sort of the comedy leavening thing here, whatever. But you know, I mean, I got done with it, and I thought, well, hell, you know, I mean, I, I got to see my vision as closely as I could get it, I got to do it. And then the movie came out and, and I found out they'd fucked me over. So then <sighs> that sucks. it's been, hasn't, hasn't been all fun and games since then, but you know, to lighten things up a little bit, please tell me the origin that, you know, the origin of the let's get nut line of the what? The let's get nuts line <laughs> in the movie. Yes. Yes. No, that, do you I, deny a responsibility? That, could have, been, that could have been me, but I, but I, <laughs> At this point, no. It, it was such an odd line to say. <laughs> you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. So you've never been shy of adding politics into your comics, no. So obviously, you, you it's it's something that you know it, it's 
it's inherent in the material. Did you ever get any blowback? No. Again, Marvel in those days, they gave you complete creative freedom and they meant it. I mean, awesome. You know, so if, if I was turning the book in on time and the book was selling and Captain America was, was their number one title, at least a good part of that time, they were like, well, thank you. (laughs) You know, do do what you do, what you do. And then, you know, I didn't start out to write politics into my comics, but I was doing Captain America and Watergate happened. And I thought there's no way if these characters are supposed to be living in the same world we are, there's no way that Captain America doesn't react to this. And so I felt that I had to do that kind of story. And I did. And I didn't get any, I didn't get any blowback. I mean, there were some readers who didn't like it, you know, whatever. But I mean, from editorial, they were all, you know, I got complete support and, and so then, having added politics to my repertoire, every once in a while, I would fire that up again, you know. But it wasn't like I said, oh, I'm going to go write political comics. I just It just seemed like the right thing to do. That's, uh, that's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad you were able to, to add that, your voice to that. And kind of, I'm sure it was kind of cathartic in a way. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Watergate seemed like, you know... Living through Watergate, you go, man, I hope we never have to do that again. And now we've, you know, <laughs> well, we're yeah. not doing that again. We're doing, we're doing worse, but you know. Exactly. Yeah. Man, it's, it's a train wreck and I oh. cannot wait for, I don't want to say anything and jinx it. I'm just ready for, for November to, to happen. <laughs> yeah. I keep waiting for us to get to the 21st century. I want to like. Yes. I want to live in the, you know, in the present rather than in the past. So yeah, on to November, on to January. Exactly, exactly. I uh, will just keep my fingers crossed. I'm taping the debates downstairs right now. So yeah, so am I. My I my my prediction is that Harris will have some really good, well pointed barbs, and Pence will stand around like a stump and and maybe say something every now and then. Uh, completely different dynamic than than the last the last debate and i'm ready for it <laughs> yeah. so the lincoln sorry that's oh go ahead no i no i was just about to talk politics but that's not what we're here for <laughs> i would love to talk politics with steve Englehart. i'm not even joking but oh my gosh i got so many questions about green lantern that uh-huh. my friend jeff wrote for me and he's not feeling well, so I would feel bad seating that time up for. I hope questions. it's just. I hope he's just got a cold or something. He's getting a COVID test on Friday, so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're we're keeping our our fingers crossed. Yeah, he was actually going to. to be the guy interviewing you tonight, but he asked, "Hey, do you know who Stephen Gallard is?" I say, "Yes, I know who Stephen Gallard is." So I was super stoked. He's a massive Green Lantern fan. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, we we know. So in Green Lantern 188, John Stewart reveals his identity to the world, which was highly mm-hmm. unusual at the time. What led to this decision? And was it significant that it was a black character who did this? Well, once again, I came in, you know, they, Dick Giordano said, I want you to take over Green Lantern. Len Wein and, and Dave Gibbons had been doing it before me. And... So I inherited the situation in which Hal Jordan had given up being Green Lantern, John Stewart was being Green Lantern, and there was some mysterious predator who was menacing everybody. And I, you know, I had to think, okay, well, 
that's I'm coming in in the middle of that story. What am I going to do with it? And, you know, I'm sure somebody even said it, but I mean, we all understood that Hal Jordan was going to come back and be Green Lantern at some point. But I, you know, from the start, I said, well, why does that mean that Jon Stewart has to go away again? You know, I mean, why can't there be two of them? When then, after having figured that out, I said, why can't there be three of them? And I went out and, and <laughs> pulled Guy Gardner out of obscurity and, and, you know, totally reinvented Guy Gardner, as did Joe Staten on the art. I, I hadn't even really thought about it till Joe mentioned it once. But Guy Gardner's the first Green Lantern who doesn't wear some version of the same suit, right? I mean, Joe and I, you know, had a, had a great time with Guy Gardner. But anyway, I just thought... John Stewart needs to stick around. And if John Stewart's going to stick around, he needs to have a story of some sort. And, and the idea that he could reveal himself really quickly set him apart from, from, you know, the green lanterns we had known to this point. And it was just trying to get him rolling on his own path to be his own person, rather than just the guy who got to show up whenever Hal Jordan decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Even recall, I mean, the cover of that issue was people going, wow, he's taking off his mask. That's amazing. But I don't recall it as even being such a big deal to me. It was just like, this will, you know, this will work and, and it'll set him apart from the other with Green Lantern and, and we'll go from there. And, and so then I had two of them and then I had three of them and then I had the, the Green Lantern core. I just, uh, I loved all the mythology, you know, that John Broom and Gil Kane and Julie Schwartz had created probably most of that mythology was was Julie knowing how those guys worked. I mean Broom was Broom was a good guy as well. But I mean he worked well with Julie under Julie's system of of the of the editor and the writer sort of working stuff out together. In any event, it's just, you know, there's so much more to Green Lantern than there is to a lot of the other characters. And I loved playing with all of that. That's my answer. <laughs> How did you ensure that that Stewart was was a different Green Lantern than than Jordan? And I, I guess we can expand that. And how how did you ensure that uh, everyone else had their own you know uniqueness? Well, I mean that was kind of a. I like to do that. I like to make each character unique. But b. Somebody said to me at that time. They said, "How can you do a group book when everybody's got the same power?" And I said, "It's not about the power. It's about the people in the group." which has always been my, you know, my thing. So it, it never bothered me that they all had a ring and they all could, you know, do what they wanted to with their willpower because Kilowog was different from Aresia, was different from Chip, was different from Salak, was different from Hal Jordan, you know. And I had done a bunch of group books at that point, Avengers and Defenders and Justice League, whatever. So I, I take, again, some pride and pleasure in making each person in the group important to the group. You know, nobody, nobody ends up as just kind of the person standing in back while Superman does his thing. Cause next issue, Superman will be in back and it'll be somebody else up front. And that, you know, so with the green lantern core, I kind of made use of the fact that they all had kind of a similar, that, that they had a similar power and, and were part of a part of one organization and everything that was fun to explore. I was just, I was reminded the other day of where Kilowog decided to join the Russians because, like, he didn't know anything on Earth and it makes sense to him based on his background. And, you know, there was just so much, so many things you could do 
in that environment. So Staten and I just loved Green Lantern. We just, you know, we had such a good time on Green Lantern. One of my earliest childhood memories, by the way, is me reading an issue of Green Lantern Corps with my dad. Mm-hmm. So that was, I don't want to make you feel old or anything, but that's what I learned how to read off of. Yeah. So. Know, yeah. No, sadly enough, I am. Well, I wouldn't say old. I don't feel old, but I, you know, I've been around for a while now. And that seems weird when I, you know, you mentioned it before. I mean, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about, I wrote 45 years ago, 50 years ago, almost, which is like ridiculous. You know, it shows the staying power of your work. And well, uh, I mean, again, it was a wonderful era for comics. I mean, if you like comics, the 70s comics are, you know, we had complete freedom. We could make them everything that we thought they ought to be. And, you know, and uh, if you're, you know, all the Marvel movies, well, not all the Marvel movies. I mean, they, they kind of move on. But I mean, that's just a great era for comics. I was very, I was very fortunate to be a part of it, you know, to be able to work in that environment. And, and, but yeah, that it was a good era. There were good stories and, and they stand up. I mean, when people, I mean, now I'm just sort of speculating, but I mean, you know, when people, whatever, whatever means good comic to somebody, they can usually find something to scratch that itch in seventies comics, you know? Oh yeah. So, but in going into the eighties with your, with your green lantern and your West coast Avengers, all these comics specifically, I have a question about a quote that Psylocke said, we came to protect earth, not subscribe to America. This points out the division that, that kind of borders in the world create. Was it, was this a commentary on America's view of their own exceptionalism? What, what was the impetus for you to, to say that is such an amazing thing for a comic character to say? Well, I mean, it was sort of a commentary, but not that wasn't the point I was trying to make, I guess. Again, the, all these were supposed to be aliens who came from different societies on different planets, and now they're all here. I mean, if, if, if we all went to another planet that had an existing society and history and all that kind of stuff, you know, the person who brought you there might say, hi, I live in, in Flagistan and, and we do things this way. And you might go, okay, cool. But pretty soon you'd see, you know, Gurgistan and go, well, they're kind of interesting too. And, and, and you wouldn't have any allegiances. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't have any history with any of this stuff. So you could kind of look at everything. And, and Kilowog came from, from a, basically a sort of communist society. <clears throat> and so he looked around Amer- the world, <clears throat> sorry, and uh, said, well, those guys look more like what I'm used to. And, and there was no reason why not. I, but I, I was exploring Kilowog. I was exploring the dynamics of this team of people from different backgrounds and so forth, more than trying to say, oh, you know, this is a comment on American exceptionalism. Just, just doing characters, just doing characters in and taking the story seriously, you know. I mean, this these are these are these are real characters, and they're in a real world. And how would they react, you know? What do you do to kind of step outside of your own pretenses, your own, you know, set 
your own mind and get into these characters' heads. I mean, I would have never thought to to think like Kilowog or, or Zaz or anybody. So, so how how do you do that? It's just something I do. I, I mean, it, it is a it is a skill or a talent or a defect. <laughs> I don't know, um, <laughs> but I don't I don't have any problem. I mean, I get I get asked the question. Well, how do you write the Joker? How do you get inside the Joker's head? Well, I just do. You know, I mean, it's just I'm I'm it was that thing about wanting to know why people wanting to know people and being told, well, there's many different theories. And what I took out of that was there's many different ways you can skin a cat. I mean, you can look at people from all sorts of angles and and that's, you know, I mean, I'm a I'm a personally I'm a liberal democrat, right? But I can write Batman as a as a more, you know, conservative for very quick and easy distinctive, you know, labels here. And I don't feel like, oh, you know, I'm betraying my inner principles by writing a guy who isn't like me. I'm interested to write people who aren't like me, you know? So you, you really took that skill to in, into overdrive when you were writing the Justice League book. Was there a character that you had particular difficult time finding a voice for? I found an adequate voice but for everybody, but Aquaman has always seemed... You know, this was the this was the Aquaman with two hands and blonde <laughs> hair. You know, I mean, he seemed finding something distinctive about him was was I remember was difficult. I, you know, I I wrote him as best I could with as much craft as I could, and hopefully he came across as a you know as an interesting character in and of himself. But I mean, he was you know, and the Adam I would say both of them were. They didn't give me a lot to work with. There, was, there hadn't been a lot of interesting things that had happened to them that I could say, oh, well, that's a thing that I want to build on or that's, a, you know. Yeah. Um, and I knew, I mean, if, you know, if somebody, if I'd been, if I were going to write Aquaman and I was going to, and I was, it was normal times and I was going to be there for as long as I wanted to write the book, I would have, you know, I would have d- dived shall we say a lot deeper into into him but i was doing the justice league and i was only doing it for you know a year due to outside circumstances so i gave you the best aquaman i could give but i didn't i you know i didn't have to to sustain him over time think of things you know you know i'm i'm I don't know that I would have thought of cutting off his hand but i mean you know <laughs> you got to do something you know so, so. You you did a fantastic job on on making Red Tornado feel like a real character. Yeah, he was. Was, was he a favorite of yours? Not a favorite, but I always thought it was interesting that Denny in Denny uh, introduced Red Tornado the exact same month that Stan introduced the Vision, or maybe it was Roy. Who, yeah, it was Roy who introduced the Vision. But they but the two Red Androids both showed up at the same month. And I know Roy and Denny's friends. I have I've never known, actually, I've never never bothered to ask whether there was any collaboration or, or competition or anything, you know, unspoken between the two of them. But you know, Vision was a, an extremely favorite character of mine. Vision and Wanda, I loved writing Vision and Wanda with all the stuff that was going on. Red Tornado, like any other DC character, it just kind of sat there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't do much, but I I he was easy to find a voice for, as I recall. You know, I mean, kind of, kind of diffident, but also kind of just certain. 
you know, everything is very logical because he's an android, you know. So it's, he kind of, he was very, in the, in the end of, the, of my run, when he unmasked the stars are, and, and he's just going, well, it was just obvious. I mean, you know, I just, this <laughs> happened, this happened, this happened, you know. So I, I understood. That was, he was fun to write. So I, I have a few more questions. I don't want to take too much more of your time up, but are you credited as a co-creator of Kilowog with Joe Staten? Does yeah. does DC give you this credit? Yes, it's you know this again is inside baseball stuff. When when Joe Staten and I put in for Kilowog and for Guy Gardner, DC said no, they're just Green Lanterns, and we don't we're not going to do anything. You know, there's a lot of Green Lanterns. But they both became big hits. So then they, DC came back to us like six months later and said, okay, we'll give you Kilowog, but we won't give you Guy Gardner because he pre-existed. You didn't create Guy Gardner. And Joe and I said, well, we created this Guy Gardner. We created this guy with a completely new attitude and a completely new look uh, that has no real bearing on the one that was a vegetable before this. Oh, yeah. But DC said, nope, nope. No, you don't get to have Guy Gardner, which is another bone of contention. I mean, I've got, I have my bigger bone of contention with Batman, but I mean, that's Joe and I have never been happy with that, that thing, you know, that, that approach. I mean, DC's, DC's approach in a nutshell is that DC created everything and, and they don't like to associate, they don't like to say, you know, the Englehart State and Guy Gardner or the. Englehart Rogers, Batman, they want to say, it's our Batman, it's our Green Lantern, you know, oh, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, if Kilowog or Boss Thorn or Silver St. Cloud shows up and stuff, I get credit, we get credit, we get, you know, some payment. A little bit of scratch. But Guy Gardner, no. Don't get it for Guy Gardner. Are you looking forward to the the upcoming TV show on, I guess, this HBO Max? Is there a Guy Gardner show? Oh no no no! The uh, they're doing a Green Lantern TV show, from what I understand. Oh, okay, yeah, no. Well, I'm, I'll have to see. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in addition to just the general kibitzing, I might, you know, depending on on you know if if they make Guy Gardner a star, it's not going to sit well with with either Joe or me. But you know, we'll see. I hear you. I hear you. And earlier, I meant to ask you this: Did you ever get around to watching the Joker film? Yeah. What what did you think as somebody who you know has put a considerable amount of time writing this character? What what was your viewpoint on it? Well, I tend to think that, again. See, this is what I say: you 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 come to your own conclusions on stuff. I tend not to be interested in the origin story of the Joker. To me, the Joker is just sort of a force of nature. You know, he's just he's just this wild card, so to speak. That. Batman, who operates in a fairly logical, buttoned-down approach to life, and the Joker is obviously his his opposite. So I, the arc for me, the axis for me, is between the most human Bruce Wayne Batman that I can do and this sort of non-human, crazy entity. Therefore, you know, I personally, I love Alan Moore. I love, you know... I, v for Vendetta remains my favorite of all those things, but Watchmen, I mean, it's just, you know, I love Alan Moore, but I didn't like The Killing Joke because I don't want, I don't, he's a failed comedian. I mean, it's like, yeah, it seems, and, you know, and so the Joker movie sort of the same thing. It's like, I don't need 
yeah, okay, fine, but I think you kind of missed... If you think the Joker's just a, a crazy serial killer, then I guess you didn't miss it, but I think he somehow got more of an aura than that, you know? So that's just me. That's just, you know... That's just me going on. Doesn't doesn't I I tried to figure out who that guy was, and I came to a different conclusion. So I hear you. Yeah, with me, I enjoyed the film in so much as it was a copy of Taxi Driver. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But outside of that, I, I didn't like. You could have just had it and not called it the Joker, and it would have been fine. It's. Like you were talking about earlier, origin films with with people like that aren't aren't really that great because you you don't want. Do I really want to know why Darth Vader turned into Darth Vader? Or I want to see what he does as Darth Vader. Right, and and, and that particular storyline was was handled terribly. So <laughs> you know, you never you could have maybe you could have like made that really work, but not with the actor that they chose and not with the writing that they did for that. Well. You know. It's funny. I was actually uh, thinking about your run on Joker, and it made me think of the scene. I, I don't know if you've you've seen Rogue One, but the scene when they yeah. reveal Vader towards the end, and oh. he is a badass. He they made Vader scary again, and you're like, "Holy shit, that's Vader!" Yeah, that's absolutely. that's what you did to Joker. So <laughs> that that's a perfect analog to to your work in, in Batman. So well, and I think that's a perfect analog in both directions. I mean, you had a really ominous, scary guy, and then you kind of let it become rote. You know, it's just like, oh, here he is. He's scary. Let's all be scared. And it took, you know, somebody had to like say, wait a minute, let's get back to to what really made this guy what he was supposed to be. You can you can do that, but a lot, but for some reason, you know, a lot of people are content to just kind of like move the pieces around without trying to get inside the heads, as I keep saying. You know. Well, it, I always ask towards the end of the show, I want to ask, is there a, a particular comic shop that you appreciate, that you enjoy, that you think other people need to check out? A comic shop? Yes, yes. Well, here, here in Oakland, we have Dr. Comics and Mr. Games, which was my store. I, you know, that was a good store and it was the closest one to me. That's the one I went to in Berkeley. There's comic relief, or at least there has been, it was for years. Comic relief was run by a guy who, you know, was a real comic book guy. And then he died 10 years ago now, maybe, I don't know. And, and, you know, people took it over from there, but it was, it didn't have the same ambiance anymore. But it was a really good store, and I and you know I actually haven't been over there in, in quite a long time. But if you're in the Bay Area, I you know in the East Bay, Oakland area, Doctor Comics and Mister Games would be the store I'd recommend. Awesome, awesome. So you guys, Doctor Comics and Mister Games, hit that place up if you're in that area. I we we want to keep these places open, which now is you know kind of an impossible task, but. Let's let, let's do our best because we we want comics selling. We want people buying comics. Um, do you have anything that you want to promote before we before we both get mad at our TV screens? No, I mentioned I mentioned this this thing that I'm writing, and when I get done with it, I want to promote that. But I but I'm not there yet. So when nope. you get done writing, and 
and you want to promote that, I want you to come here and I want you to talk to us about it. Okay. Because I, I'm super stoked to see it. I can do that. Steve Englehart, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I am going to go downstairs and start drinking. And <laughs> may, maybe it'll dull some of the pain. Maybe it won't. But regardless, let's be sure to vote and uh, mask up and wash our hands. All that. It's, it's <laughs> not hard. It's the, literally the least you can do. Yeah, if you care about other oh people. Because whatever, you know, whatever your deal is, if you care about other people, wear a mask, wash your hands, and vote. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's yeah. a perfect, perfect, yeah, very succinct way to put that. Steve, thank you so much. Have a good evening, okay? Yeah, you too. All right. Bye. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenny Creek, and that is not Mr. Horsley, because today I'm going solo. I'm solo, so solo. No, seriously, today on the show, well, it's Steve Englehart, isn't it? And you know Steve's work. He was a very prolific writer, uh, a lot of Marvel, a lot of DC in the 70s and 80s, and... You know, he sat down today with our with our good buddy Casey and just had a, a great time and a great conversation. And instead of hearing me ramble on about a bunch of useless things, why don't we just sit back, relax, and listen to Steve in his own words. 